Well, we're now uh, a full month into the new year, which means in my world something that I would have never anticipated 14 years ago when I first got married, and that is that Krista and I have nearly all of our campsites picked um, for all of the camping that we're going to do this coming summer. This is... uh, a new kind of a thing for me. If you had said to me 14 years ago when I was getting married that uh, I would eventually become a camper, I probably would have laughed um, in your face. I um, have inherited my mother's genes, and um, not these ones, different. No, I'm just kidding. Um, my mother, uh, her definition of vacation was anything that temporarily, temporarily elevated your standard of living. And so she would be horrified, I think, to imagine that I spend the equivalent of about five or six weeks in the camper um, every single summer. I was horrified too. I, I, from her, I think I inherited a vision of what camping is. Camping uh, is simply a way to live in the dirt. And I couldn't figure out 15 years ago why somebody would choose um, to do that when there were options. I <laughs> am a pool guy, not a beach guy. I'm an indoor guy, not an outdoor guy. I don't even like watching my kids play in the sandbox or make mud pies or jump in mud puddles. Like, it's disgusting. All of it is disgusting and horrifying to me. And there was no part of me that wanted to live outdoors for several days at the time with the smells and the bugs and the whole, it's horrible. Until I went camping with my wife. And I caught a whole other vision for camping. The first time we went camping, we canoed into Algonquin with a tent and we set up on a campsite and uh, cooked our first meal and she crawled into the tent and she fell asleep. And that's basically what she did for four days. She slept, she would get up periodically, sit by the fire, eat something, and then go back to bed and sleep some more. And I sat alone in the quiet for four days, read my book, generally uninterrupted, I just had, I I caught a different vision for what it means to camp. That camping, (coughs) excuse me, life outdoors can just be the experience of a pace of life that you don't get to experience anywhere else. It is the redemptive side of unplugging of all of the unhealthy and self-destructive tendencies of our culture. And now I can't live without it. Because I caught a true vision of what it really is all about. And now I'm addicted to camping. And that's kind of what I hope this, the experience of this series has been. For the last three weeks, and this is the last week in this series, we've been talking about the role of parties in the life of following Jesus. Um, the working definition that we've been using for party has been that a party is any time that we get together to celebrate, serve, and enjoy each other in a way that makes life better. And we've kind of been looking piece by piece that definition. We've seen that Jesus lived a life that revolved around parties and he left the church with the commission, the legacy, to continue living a life that revolves around parties. We saw how... um, how the, uh, the, this vision is for everybody. This is what um, the location pastors talked about last week, about how God's heart is wide open and everyone is invited to the party. And, and we live to celebrate people just as they are, to serve them with everything that we are in a way that brings joy to our shared experience 
of life because we saw how that has the power to change lives in Jesus' stories, in our stories, in the story that we just saw uh, from Kim Bergsma, how people's lives are changed when, when folks open up the space in them, in their soul and in their life and in their schedule and at their table to invite other people in. And we sit and listen and look into each other's eyes and hear each other's stories and see what God is doing in each other. That Just how that has the power to change people's lives, both other people and our lives. Jesus called us to being together, to celebrate, serve, and enjoy each other because <coughs> excuse me, it makes us and our lives better. <coughs> well, I've gotten the sense through, of course, this series that the language of party hasn't been particularly settling to everybody in our community. I think for some people, the word party uh, can be a bit unnerving because it carries some connotations about you know, dark chapters of people's history that they're trying to leave behind. And I'm hoping that we've been careful enough in the way that we've talked about this to not trigger uh, unhealthy impulses in people. Um, for some folks, uh, it's been uncomfortable to talk about parties because uh, they're more of the introverted type, not, you know, one for big crowds and small talk. And I've had to remind some people that Jesus sometimes had dinner with folks one-on-one, -on -one, and that's a party too. Um, but I think that for some of us, there's been some discomfort around the language of party because it doesn't the language of party doesn't seem to match how we have thought about what it means to follow Jesus. That so we've had conceptions, and I'm going to talk about three of them, conceptions about what it means to live a life in relationship with God that don't align with what we think about when we think about party. For some of us, and I've lived in this space, when we think about a life with Jesus, we think about more of a rules-based religion. That to live in a relationship with God really comes down to, at its core, a list of to-dos and to-don'ts that kind of describe the behaviors that make God happy. And this is what we're supposed to be focused on. So, you know, you start with the Ten Commandments, which are kind of universal to-don'ts. And then you add some sort of local versions. I've, I've shared with you before the rhyme that we learned as kids. That we don't drink or dance or smoke or chew or hang around with girls that do. Um, and then you add... Some to-dos, some religious behaviors that are supposed to be the core of what our life is all about. Going to church and, you know, sing worship songs and whatever. We used to sing songs as a kid. Read your Bible and pray every day if you want to follow me. Um, and there's nothing wrong with those things. Those are all good things. We should be doing things that um, move us towards Jesus. And we should be avoiding things that move us away from Jesus. All of that's true. But that's not the core of what it means to live in a relationship with Jesus. Down that road is the religion of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day who defined their life with God in terms of 613 rules, you know, 248 to don'ts and 365 to do's and that's what it meant to live with God and Jesus rebuked the Pharisees over and over again. They were the ones who always ruined the party. I think for some of us, it's less about rules-based religion where we're doing things to make God happy. For some of us, we battle with a shame-based religion where we are very aware about the ways that we've made God mad. Um, it's sort of a fear-driven religion. I'm afraid 
that I'm making God mad with the choices that I make. It's, it's a guilt-driven religion where we feel bad about the choices that we've made. It's a shame-based religion in that we believe that we are virtually unlovable, never mind unlikable to God, that God has to you know, plug his nose and turn his head if he wants to have anything to do with us. As though the Bible said, for God so hated the world that he sent his son. But it doesn't, it says that God so loved the world. That fear and guilt and shame is not the heart of what it means to live in a relationship with Jesus. I think for some of us, we get caught up in an eternity-based religion. No, I should say, by the way, about the guilt, shame, fear. There are things that we do that make God sad. Um, the sin is real and, and we sometimes get caught up in it and, um, and we do need to confess those things. I'm not denying any of that. I'm just saying that's not at the core of what it means to live in a relationship with Jesus. The eternity-based religion is the one where the impulse is that a life with God really has less to do with what we do in this world and more to do with what we do in the next world. Kind of a where will you be 60 seconds after you die sort of sense of what it means to follow Jesus. That Jesus' life and death and resurrection was all about giving people the opportunity to choose to put their faith in Jesus so that they could go to heaven and avoid hell in the life after this one. And there is a life after this one. We will be resurrected and we will stand before the judgment seat of God and we will spend e eternity either in God's presence or apart from it. But that's not the heart of what it means to live in a relationship with Jesus. That's not the most central thing. And my suspicion is, like my experience with camping, if we could catch a fresh vision of what a life with Jesus really is all about, and lose some of our false visions about what it's all about, then maybe we can be, learn to be sucked into this life that God has called us to. And it turns out that at somewhere close to the center of the life that God, God has called us to is this idea of a party. That a life with God is meant to be a party. And you can see it because... In the descriptions of scripture of what life is going to be like in eternity when all of the undesirable parts of a relationship with God are stripped away. The thing that you have left is a party. In Isaiah chapter 25 it says this. This is Isaiah's vision of an eternity in relationship with God. He says, on this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. These verses come on the heels of Isaiah 25 verses 1 to 5 where Isaiah or the writer describes in intensely personal terms his, his devotion to God because of the way that God has acted supernaturally to rescue God's people from slavery and oppression to save them in a way that they could have never saved themselves this sort of rescue operation where God implements his salvation in the lives of his people and Isaiah follows it by saying when God does the saving thing that God wants to do this is what it's going to look like God is going to prepare a feast he's going to throw a party for everybody 
and it's going to last forever. Listen to the way he describes it. There is rich food, the best of meats. Um, Actually, in the Hebrew in which it was originally written, the word for rich is actually the Hebrew word for fat. The fat part of the meat, which of course is the very best part of any steak or pork chop you've ever had. Some people say that I'm gross. I don't eat steak and pork chops a lot. But some people have called me gross to my face because of the degree to which I love the fat. And I tell them it's only because I desire to live my life faithfully to the scriptures that I eat the portion that the scriptures say is the best part. The Bible says the fat is the best part. So the next time you're given a steak and there's a little bit of that delicious fat, go ahead and eat it. It's a little taste of heaven is what Isaiah says. Right, but he's talking about it's the best cuts of meat from the best cattle anywhere. It is the the choicest meat, the finest wines. And he so wants to emphasize how awesome his banquet is that he mentions all of it twice. That God is going to throw this incredible party, the best buffet you've ever seen. Of course, this is all metaphorical. And what will be the features of this party? No, number one, it'll be eternal. It'll last forever. The image is actually um, rooted in kind of the image of an inauguration banquet where a conquering king has defeated all of his enemies and he's invited all of his people to celebrate as he ushers in this era of peace and prosperity and abundance and joy that will last as long as the kingdom. In, In other, by the way, in other passages in Isaiah and in the New Testament, it's compared to a wedding banquet. Where God is the the groom and his people are the bride and they come together in love in a bond that will last for all of eternity. A wedding reception that goes on forever because God has defeated his enemies. He's defeated the enemy of death, it says. Actually, I love this image. God sets out this enormous buffet filled with the choicest meats and the finest wines And that's what all of his people are eating. What's God eating? It says he'll swallow up death. God is feasting on his enemy, destroying death forever. There is nothing left to separate us from the presence of God, from celebrating in the presence of God for all of eternity. Death is gone because sin is gone. In Romans chapter 6, it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That we have a death problem in our world because we have a sin problem in our world. That's death, the self-destructive nature of sin, is what causes death. And if you can deal with sin through forgiveness and transformation, whatever, if you can deal with the sin problem as Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection, you can deal with the death problem. I've heard somebody say that a biblical definition of sin might be, you know, like a scuba diver who cuts their own breathing tube. Because sin is the choice to separate yourself from the only source of life that you have, which is God. But if God deals with the sin problem, Then God has dealt with the death problem and there's nothing to separate us from the God who pours out his life in love on us. What else characterizes the party? It is eternal. It's free of death. It's free of sin. Um, It's for everybody. That 
Everybody is welcome to the table. Not just the people think we, who we think ought to be there. The people that we think deserve to be there. Not just the people that we would choose to be there. The invitation is open to anybody who would respond. It's a place filled with laughter. It says that he will wipe away the tears from all faces. And in the absence of sadness, all that's left is laughter, is the joy of the celebration of being in the presence of God for all of eternity, is the party. Now here's the thing, is that Jesus says that these exact things are supposed to be the things that mark our life in the present not just what we anticipate in the future. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says this, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Um, In the gospel according to John, the use of the word life is the short form for the phrase eternal life. And eternal life in John is not what happens after you die. Eternal life in the gospel of John is the quality of life that you will experience in heaven that that we get to already enjoy now on earth it is the characteristics of life that we will one day enjoy in full that we get to begin to enjoy in part it is the ability to live the life that is coming in the future already now in the presence to begin to experience the life of heaven on earth right now I'll illustrate what I mean by that when I was in high school I graduated from high school in the June of 1991, and then I went back, not in the fall of 91, but in the winter of 92 for one more semester to get um, grade 13 physics, grade 13 algebra, and to write the Euclid math exam because all of those things were required if I was going to apply and be accepted to the University of Waterloo for electrical and computer engineering, which was my goal. And so I, uh, I went back to school in February of 1992, but I applied for the University of Waterloo in January. And because I wasn't in school in the fall, when I applied to the University of Waterloo, I was applying as a high school grad, not as a high school student. And the reason I tell you that is because I applied as a high school grad. That meant that the University of Waterloo could process my application right away Whereas all my classmates who were applying for university, their applications would be processed in June when they had graduated from high school. So the the weird thing that happened to me, I had applied to University of Waterloo. At the beginning of April, two months into my last term, I got a letter from the University of Waterloo. I opened it up and I read the letter. Inside it said, congratulations, Michael Krause, you've been accepted into the University of Waterloo Electrical and Computer Engineering Program, class of 97. I couldn't believe it. I wasn't expecting this letter for months. And I showed my parents and we went out and celebrated and I went to bed that night. You know what I did the next morning? I got up, drove to school, wrote the Euclid math exam, went to to algebra class, went to physics class, came home. The next day I got up, I went to high school, went to algebra class, went to physics class. I look back now and I think I was an idiot. The moment I got that letter, I was officially no longer a high school student. I was a university student. But I continued to live like a high school student. I continued to live within the confines of what it meant to go to high school and to write final exams. I did all the things that high school students did when, in fact, I should have been doing the things that university students did. 
I should have left high school. I should have never gone back. I should have gotten a job. I should have began to prepare for the university experience that I would one day experience. See, the point is that even though my university matriculation was still in the future, I was supposed to be living the life of a university student in the present, not the life of a high school student. And this is where we get tripped up. Too often, we fail to realize that what we're going to experience, the joy that we're going to experience in the party that is heaven for all of eternity, we're supposed to be experiencing that now. In fact, that's the life we're supposed to be living towards. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. That a party, the celebration, the joy of togetherness where we celebrate, serve, and enjoy each other in a way that makes life better. This is the vision for what it means to be living a life with God well. Because that's what we're going to be doing for eternity. And that's what we're supposed to be doing already today. Now the problem is, we haven't always thought about it like that. Right from the earliest centuries of the church, you had theologians who were condemning the idea of laughter, joy, parties, whatever. They said, laughter and celebration and parties are inappropriate among those who want to be followers of Jesus. That the only appropriate posture for a person who wants to live a life of faith is this sort of sober, serious spirituality. You got to take your faith seriously. And the thing you were supposed to feel the most was the regret and the sorrow of what a terrible person you were. And and therefore, you know, Jesus had to come and die for your sins. This is what you were supposed to feel. And actually, in the earliest centuries of the church, third, fourth century of the church, the church fathers outlawed laughter and joy within official church functions. Priests weren't allowed to tell jokes or stories, or do anything that was lighthearted or fun. You were supposed to nurture the serious sobriety of a spiritual life, the sorrow and regret of what terrible sinners we are. Well, you know what happened is that since you couldn't have fun inside official church functions, what happened was people just started having fun outside of official church functions. They started, people of faith started to throw their own street parties and dance parties. They started to mimic the county fairs of, you know, the pagan culture that they were living in. They, they started to throw a party every time there was a feast in the church, right? We're coming up on one, the season of Lent that starts next week. Um, Lent is a serious season of reflection on sin and the seriousness of Jesus' death on the cross. It's for fasting and prayer and giving to the poor, and so what people said is, in, before we get into that season, let's throw a party. And what happens the day before Ash Wednesday, which is the beginning of Lent? Mardi Gras. Fat Tuesday, it's called. It's a gigantic party. Um, in Brazil, it's called Carnival, which means to go without meat. We're about to go without meat. So let's throw a massive party. Let's just have the time of our lives to try and balance out the serious sobriety of, of a life of faith, right? You take your faith seriously. Yes, and let's do this fun stuff too. And what you end up by the Middle Ages, you end up with theological schools writing arguments for why laughter ought to be permitted. The Paris School of Theology in 1444 wrote this. They said, parties are necessary so that foolishness, which is our second nature and seems to be inherent in humanity, might freely spend itself at least once a year. Wine barrels burst if from time to time we don't open them up and let in some air. All of us are barrels poorly put together 
which would burst from the wine of wisdom if this wine remains in a state of constant fermentation of piousness and fear of God. We must give it air in order not to let it spoil. That's why we permit folly on certain days so that we may later return with greater zeal to the service of God. It's interesting what the Paris School of Theology says is that Laughter and joy and celebration is as much an important part of who we are created to be as the serious sobriety of a life of spiritual uh, of faith. That both sides are necessary. Interestingly enough, Krista and I, before we were married, we had both at some point in our teenage years written out lists of the kinds of characteristics we'd like in a future spouse. And both of us, there were only two characteristics that the lists shared in common. We both said we'd like somebody who loved Jesus. And secondly, we'd like someone who could make us laugh. Those were the two most important characteristics to both of us. And this is what they're saying. The ability to laugh and joy and celebrate is every bit as important and central and elemental to what it means to live a life of faith as the serious sobriety, the sorrow and regret of, of repenting of sin. Because this is so interesting to me. They say if you don't allow that joy to burst through, what's going to happen are people's lives are just going to burst. You've seen it happen. Krista actually is a coworker who admittedly she struggles with her weight and she explained to Krista why that was some one time she said her mom was like this fierce ruthless vegan when she was growing up she had this incredibly strict vegan diet and she used to punish the kids every time they ate something that fell outside of her ruthless vegan diet they were inflexible they were not allowed to do it and she said there came a point in time where I just couldn't take it anymore and I just rebelled against my mom, but my form of rebellion was to eat all of the foods that I wasn't supposed to eat, and now I'm having trouble kind of reining that in. And you've seen that happen in people's spiritual lives too. People grow up in these rigidly inflexible homes that are all about rules and shame and um, trying to make sure people toe the line and stay in line and get the ducks in a row and whatever. And, and you've watched people whose lives have just blown up because exactly what they say here, if you keep that constant pressure of piousness and fear of God and you never give the opportunity to celebrate, you, that's just a self-destructive way to live. The truth is that it is our second nature to laugh. And celebration is every bit as important as every other form of worship because... It says in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. That joy is the fruit of what the Holy Spirit does in our life, among other things. That the person who's following Jesus and the Holy Spirit is at work in their life, their life will manifest joy. The person who says that they're a follower of Jesus, but their life does not manifest joy is a person who is in that area of their life, just not following Jesus. They're not allowing God to do his work in them. I heard somebody say years ago, the church owes it to the world to be miraculously, supernaturally joyful as a demonstration of the kind of life that God builds into us. But here's the thing. We will only become supernaturally joyful people if we cooperate with the Holy Spirit and engage in the discipline of party. 
right? All the other things, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All those other things are things that we have to learn by discipline. We have to learn how to be peacemakers instead of fight starters. We have to learn how to be patient instead of short-tempered. We have to learn how to be kind instead of rude. We have to learn how to be self-controlled instead of just flying off the handle. We have to learn those things by discipline. It's exactly the same with joy. We learn to be people who are supernaturally joyful when we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in the discipline of party. That's been the whole point in this series. And what does that look like? It looks exactly like what Isaiah describes in Isaiah 25. It looks like uh, being together with people and celebrating how awesome God is. You know, the ancient Jews had a celebration, a discipline of party. It was called the thank offering. When God did something awesome in your life, you know what you did? You packed up all the best food that you could afford. You gathered together all the people that you love. You go down to the temple. You have the priest slaughter an animal, which was the most gigantic barbecue in Israel. And the the priest would barbecue your animal, give it back to you, and you would throw a party in the temple to celebrate how awesome God is that you were able to have a child, that your wife lived through childbirth, that your kid got married, that you had a bumper crop, whatever it was, when you were thankful to God for how awesome God is, you'd throw a party and you'd celebrate God's awesomeness. You'd fill it with all sorts of people, not just people who are like you, not just the people you always invite, your friends and family and neighbors and the people who get you and so on from the same class or education or whatever. You invite people who are different than you because the Bible always says that, that uh, the group that gathers to party in heaven is from every nation and tribe and tongue and culture and background and whatever. You gather a group that is absolutely as diverse as humanly possible. You gather new people, different people, diverse people, and you celebrate with them. You fill the space with good food with the best that you can afford. You fill the space with fine wine as appropriate and if appropriate and you know for yourself whether or not it's appropriate. You fill the space with the celebration of the fact that God has given you the, the, whatever it is that you're celebrating and you celebrate as best you can. You fill the space with laughter because God is the source of joy. We need to develop the discipline of party in order to become the kind of supernaturally joyful people that are living the life of heaven here on earth, the life of the future already in the present. So what, how can we do that? Sometimes you can do it with us as a church. Um, last week, we threw a lifeline event to get people connected to life groups. Life groups, you know what they are? They're times when people get together to celebrate, serve, and enjoy each other in a way that makes everybody's life better. It's, it's not, I mean, necessarily a party. But I think it should be our church's commitment to, like, to make whatever we do at life group as fun as absolutely humanly possible. To make life group a supernaturally joyful environment. And if you're not... Connected to one, talk to your location pastor and get connected to one. Next Sunday, we have a party that we're throwing called Vision Night. It's Southridge's version of a thank offering. We're going to have dinner together in our St. Catherine's location. All three locations coming together to eat a meal together. And then we're going to go into a worship service where we're just going to celebrate God's awesomeness for all the incredible things that we've got to experience so far this year since September. Be a part of it. The next week, um, we're... we're um, throwing an event called this party time. 
And there are dozens of us, Krista and I included, who have agreed to host house parties for every single person in Southridge, in all three of our locations. Krista and I are going to have two or three dozen people over at our house just to get together, mix and mingle, be together to celebrate, serve, and enjoy each other in a way that makes everybody's life better, to meet new people, and just experience the joy of being a spiritual family together. Make sure you stop by and sign up after the service to be a part of it. I want to see you at my place. So we can party together. I think some of it is what we do privately, personally. Right? Tonight is the Super Bowl. Go to a Super Bowl party. Throw a Super Bowl party. Have people in your house. Serve food. Enjoy each other. Celebrate God's goodness that he's given us each other. And he's given us our homes. And he's given us the ability to eat and have fun. And to just, just celebrate. Make a commitment to eating with somebody you don't normally eat with once a week. Right? Easiest way to do it. Put something in the crock pot on Sunday morning and come to church knowing that somebody's coming over for lunch. You just don't know who. And invite somebody that you don't know very well to come over to your house and eat lunch and spend the afternoon and be together to celebrate, serve, and enjoy each other in a way that makes both your life better. Commit, make a commitment to doing that. Make a commitment to inviting new people into your life. Buy everyone a cup of coffee. Sit across the table. Look into their eyes. Hear their story. See what God, the way God is active in them. The way they radiate Jesus to you. Embrace it. Learn from them. Just celebrate being together. There's a million ways for us to exercise the discipline of party. The point is that we are finding ways to become supernaturally joyful because, and this is the central thing about Isaiah, whenever we throw a party like that, it's God who's at the center. Right? In Isaiah's vision, God's the host. He's the one who's thrown the party. God is the cause of the party. In Isaiah, God is the source of the party. He's the one that has drawn all these people together. The Bible says he puts the lonely in families. God is the one who's given us this food, this space, this table, the freedom. God has given us every good and perfect gift that we're celebrating. God is the source of the laughter. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. It's from the Holy Spirit that we experience life. This is what we celebrate. We celebrate when we celebrate God is in the midst because we celebrate the God who is in our midst. We celebrate what he's done to rescue us in ways that we could have never saved ourselves. We celebrate that he's done this through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus who invited us to the party in the first place. He celebrate the fact that he's making that real in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is making us supernaturally joyful people. If only we will answer the invitation to come to the party. So what are you waiting for? It's party time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we know that sin is a serious thing and we don't want to pretend it doesn't exist or it's not important. We don't want to pretend that there's not pain and brokenness in the world. We don't want to be fake plastic people who just paste smiles on and try to be happy when everything is not happy. That's not what this is about. We know that faith is a serious thing. We know that the world is in desperate need of you. And yet, simultaneously, we are people who are made by you for laughter 
called by you to be supernaturally joyful at the beautiful, at the beauty of who you are and the beautiful thing that you have done in us and are doing in the world. Would you teach us the discipline of party so that we can experience the life of heaven, the life of the future here on earth in the here and now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.